This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of Steady Habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining me. Yale epidemiologist Greg Gonzalez does not mince words about the U.S. response to COVID, either on Twitter to his 72,000 followers or in person. He's been calling for a wholesale overhaul of the nation's public health infrastructure, which has failed us during the pandemic. In a new piece in The Nation magazine, he calls on President-elect Joe Biden to create a new deal for public health. But for right now, we're stuck with the old system we've got, and Gonzalez says it's falling woefully short in terms of vaccinating the public. Despite Connecticut's strong national ranking in vaccine distribution, our state has still only vaccinated under 5% of its population. He says it's just not happening fast enough. Greg Gonzalez, welcome to Steady Habits. Thanks for joining me. Glad to be here. First of all, I'd like to get your reaction so far to the vaccine rollout in the U.S. How do you think that we're doing as far as getting this vaccine to people? So terribly, in one word. Um, The point is, is that the speed of the rollout, the breadth of the rollout um, is just as important as having a good vaccine to put into people's arms. The, the, The slower we go, the fewer people we vaccinate, is just giving more time for the virus to spread in our communities, take hold, uh, and kill men, women, and children around the country. So we've gotten, you know, 10, 20 million, 30 million doses out around the country. There's a far smaller proportion of those that actually have gotten into the arms of of people around, around the United States. What's the choke point, do you think? What's the biggest problem we have? Well, the choke point is, is that there is an operation warp speed to, do research and development on the vaccines, but there was no Operation Warp Speed to vaccinate people, right? There was no real consideration of how to scale up um, the capacity to, to produce mRNA vaccines, which are the ones we're, t- we're, we're using right now. There was no, you know, state and local um, public health departments and uh, States in general are in charge of vaccination, but they can't do it without money. Connecticut, like other states, can't sort of just print money like the federal government can. And we've been waiting for months for state and local relief from, from the U.S. Congress, and we didn't get it. And so um, basically all the bets were put on developing the vaccine, but not any very few resources were put into delivering it and getting it to the people who need it. And so we're, we're in that situation now. Um, and in the chaos of the current political moment, there's nobody in charge in D.C., Right. There's nobody in charge in D.C., so the states are on their own. The states have, in some ways, been on their own since the start of this. There's this 50-state solution. Everyone has been dealing with uh, shutdowns or openings or closures on their own. When it comes to distribution of the vaccine, how might you devise a system that would work better? I mean, realistically, given where we are right now, but if the Biden administration comes in in a couple of weeks what would you propose they do to get things ramped up quickly? So, look, we don't have a federalized public health system. We have a state and local public health system in the United States. That being said, um, federal agencies can uh, be mobilized to to, to um, provide technical guidance to the states. The U.S. Congress can give the money that states need to deliver it. Um, if there's a question about having access to the syringes or the vaccines themselves or other sort of commodities that are needed for the vaccination effort, you know, the president of the United States can invoke the Defense Production Act and 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 do that. So there's lots of stuff that can be done centrally through the federal government. Uh, the CDC is often called on 
by states to help them do different things and help them sort of prepare for things, give them guidance, um, give them technical advice. Um, and the Congress needs to allocate money to do it as well. And so there's lots of ways the executive and the legis legislative branch at the federal level can make this make this much easier for the states to do. Um, but, you know, right now we don't have the resources uh, and states, again, as I said, are left on their own, to their own devices. If, though, we were able to get money to the states and to the local health districts in order to do this properly, is that system robust enough to actually deliver across the country? One of the problems with even a state like Connecticut is every town and city seems to run its own way, and you extrapolate that across the country. There are a lot of different ways in which health departments work. Is that the best system to actually deliver the type of help we need right now? It's the system we have, but you know, President Biden can come into power in just a few days and say, you know what, we need the new Congress, which is fully democratic, to set up uh, a bill to pay for mass vac vaccination clinics, right? And say, we're not telling the states what to do, but we're gonna give you plenty of money to open up mass vaccination clinics in both suburban, rural, and urban areas in your, in your, in your, in your states to get people uh, vaccinated as quickly as possible. We're gonna set up, we're gonna give you money for mobile units, um, to, to get to places where people can't come to you. A lot of ways the federal government can incentivize better delivery of, of uh, vaccines and other sort of healthcare, um, healthcare needs. And that means creating the, the appropriations flows to make sure we can do this. You know, a, you can have a, a federal bill that says, you know what, the states and local governments are in charge of vaccination, but we're going to pay for mass vaccination clinics. We're all uh, mobile vaccination clinics, we're going to do all that's necessary to pave the way for you to be able to do this, even if there's a little bit of variation at the state and local level. In your piece in The Nation, you, you talk about uh, designing uh, a type of new public health system that it would include something like a, a health core, getting a whole bunch more people jobs, administering vaccines, but also just working holistically on the COVID-19 response. Tell me a bit more about what you mean about that and what that would look like. So, you know, everybody likes to declare that we have the best healthcare system in the world. Um, and in, in terms of end-of-life care and sophisticated medical procedures, maybe that's true. But in terms of life expectancy, we are, you know, not even in the top dozen of countries across the, 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 the world in terms of life expectancy. Um, and some of that is because we have a, a fractured healthcare system. Or we don't have any sort of national healthcare. And even in the wake of the ACA, we still have plenty of people who are underinsured or uninsured. Um, we also don't have uh, a real commitment to public health. Only 3% of our healthcare dollar goes to funding on public health, sort of that infrastructure that was supposed to be there to, to be the, the first line of defense against uh, the coronavirus. Um, you know, we ask, like, how could it have spread across the U.S. so quickly and so deeply into, into, into our communities is because the preparedness um, w was on paper. You know, state and local public health departments have had close to 50,000 or more uh, decreases in staff over the past 10 years under Obama and under Trump. Um, and so we've had a, a, a systematic disinvestment in public health that sort of left us unprepared to deal with this pandemic. The final thing is that many other countries around the world um, have better life expectancy, not just because they have a better public health system or national health care. They also have social welfare programs that basically undergird all the other things that keep us healthy. Um, if you don't have the right housing, if you don't have the right access to food, etc., cetera, um, you, you're going to be vulnerable in many ways that impact your health. And so when my colleagues and I call for a new deal for public health, we're saying we need to really sort of um, upgrade the American 
public health, healthcare, social welfare infrastructure uh, so that we can have life expectancies that are enjoyed by some of our peer nations around the world. Part of that is getting out into communities that are hardest hit by the pandemic and frankly were hardest hit by health disparities way before COVID ever arrived on the scene. Uh, these are often rural communities or urban communities of color. Um, and, you know, often we don't need, we, we do need more primary care physicians around the U.S., but many um, places around the world use community health workers to be in the field working with people on disease prevention. We're going to do your diabetes screening. We're going to make sure you get your mammogram, make sure all your kids get your immunizations. Um, and if that, if we had a robust community health and community uh health worker infrastructure in the U.S., they could be mobilized to deliver vaccines, to deliver masks, to deliver face shields, to deliver sanitizer, to help people na navigate um, uh, isolation should they come down with, with COVID-19. Um, but, you know, we have very thin infrastructure in public health and community health at the local level um, because it's something that we just really have, have never thought we needed to do in the United States. What's so interesting about that, though, is you talk about the systematic disinvestment in public health. You can't help but notice that, just take Connecticut, almost every week in some town in the state, whether it's it's Hartford HealthCare or the Yale system or your local CVS or Walgreens, someone is opening up some new clinic that allows you to go in and get some type of health service. It's not as though we're not opening up lots of places where you can get some sort of health care. So someone's investing in something, but you're suggesting we're not investing in necessarily the right things that people need. Yeah. So look, you know, Yale New Haven Hospital and um, Hartford Hospital, you know, provide wonderful care often, um, you know, in the case of Yale New Haven, specialty care. Um, but guess where Yale New Haven's primary care clinic is moving? It's all been moved to the to Long Wharf, right? Um you know, it gives you a sense of the ge geographical prioritization of what matters for Yelma Haven Health. Um, they're going to kill me about this, but, you know, it's it's down by the harbor. It's down by I-95. Um, it's all being shunted off to the periphery of, of, of our city. Um, and that's how we think of primary care in the U.S., right? So we can have these fancy hospitals, um, world-class hospitals like, you know, Hartford Hospital and Yelma Haven. Um, but our investment in primary care is really somebody else should do that. It's not, it's not worth uh, using the premier hospitals and health systems in the country to, to do this. So we have a weak primary care infrastructure in the U.S. Doctors go into to more lucrative uh, specialties than, they, than they, they turn towards primary care in the U.S. Um, and then again, we have the question of uh, maybe not as much in Connecticut, but surely in other places in the country where, yeah, you can go to that, that city MD or that 24-hour clinic but you're also going to have to pay out of pocket. Um, and so um, the, the point about healthcare is that it shouldn't be something that you, you, you can only have if you can afford it on a given day. Um, you need to be able to get it at point of care um, uh, when you need it. If we're going to get people tested for COVID, if we're going to get people vaccines, it shouldn't be you know, that they have to wait until the CVS is open or, or drive to the CVS. The point is, is we, should, we should be able to, to meet people where they're at get vaccinations into the communities and not have to worry about going into a, rely on private pharmacies to do the public's health. But, but the governor has, has really relied on those two institutions. He said, you know, CVS and Walgreens, whether it's for testing or vaccine distribution, this is really the system that, that he wants to rely on. And it's not just Connecticut. Other states are doing it too. Because we don't have the alternative. We do not have a robust public health infrastructure in the U.S. So, you know, everything the market will provide, Right. You know, and, you know, here at CVS and Walgreens will provide. The point is, is that it, it's, a, it's a fallback 
um, and it's a, it's a kludge, and it's not how public health should work. You know, again, three percent of our healthcare dollar is focused on public health in the United States. Um, you know, our public health infrastructure in the state of Connecticut, one of the richest states in the country, you know, uh, is, is tiny compared to the sort of healthcare infrastructure we have in the state. So, um, you know, we're doing the best we can with the the cards we were dealt, but nobody's going to describe it as an optimal situation uh, for, for how to deal with a pandemic. One of the things that I think a lot of people across the state have seen as as chaotic is the response from the government in terms of closures, shutdowns, the opening of parts of the economy, and then the closure of other parts of the economy. Obviously, we're in the middle of another big wave of COVID-19. I'm wondering how you view the way this state and other states have looked at this balance between keeping the economy running and shutting things down in order to try to stop the rapid spread of COVID? So again, we are, we are in an untenable situation. The point is, if we want people to stay home, you got to pay them to do it, right? You know, you and I might be able to work from home given our, given our professions and, and, and the jobs we have, but plenty of people can't afford to do that. You know, I was on Connecticut Public Radio earlier this, this well, actually in 2020, uh, with somebody from the Connecticut Restaurant Association. I, my grandparents were restaurateurs. I get it. You know, but we could have uh, an appropriation by the Congress to support restaurants and bars and allow them to close without feeling the pinch that, that closures without support mean. So we basically, I said, you know, we've been left on our, our own around vaccination, but we've left, been left on our own about everything, right? You know, all of these bills that came through Congress the people feeding at the trough were these big corporations and then, then these, you know, these institutions that desperately do not need support. So if we, you know, we're talking about closures and this and that, you have to make it easy for people to do the right thing. And we've made it really, really incredibly hard for people to do the right thing. You know, nobody wants to close a, a restaurants or schools or bars. Nobody wants to do that. But if you have to do it, you have to make it easy. You have to make it, you know, you have, you have to make it, feasible for people to, to put food on the table if we have to go this direction. Nobody, nobody's saying, let's shut things down across the board and without any social support. We can do it in a, tar- if, we had t- if we had reasonable testing, you know, starting the summer that we could flood the state with testings, flood the country with testing, uh, we, we could have done targeted contact tracing and isolation, uh, but we, we've never been able to scale up testing in the U.S. So like we've had this sort of deep underinvestment, even in the pandemic, in the middle of the pandemic, um, because, you know, largely because the president and uh, the former majority leader, Mitch McConnell, um, it was not a priority for them. Um, and so basically, you know, as my friend Amy Kapczynski from the law school and I wrote in the Boston Review in March or April, we're alone against the virus. Everybody's sort of every man and woman for himself. Um, and so, you know, Governor Lamont is trying to do the right thing. He's under a lot of pressure from, you know, different constituencies in the state, um, you know, and, you know, I don't think he's done a perfect job, um, but you know the tools that have been given to the governors uh, in red states or blue states to to combat this epidemic have been have been piss poor. They've gotten nothing. Um, they've gotten very little from the federal government, and they're trying to do their best to keep their hospitals from being overrun. Some of the 
conversations that are happening right now at the state capitol have to do with the regimen for getting the vaccine out in phases to different classes of people uh, who are in different situations. You want to get them out to healthcare workers. You want to get them out to people in nursing homes. Quite a bit of conversation about people in other congregate settings, including inmates. My colleague Kellen Lyons has been writing quite a bit about COVID in prisons. Some early releases have been made. A question for you is, should Connecticut be looking more closely at the problem of COVID spread in tight places like jails and prisons and find some new way to deal with that soon. So this is where I, I think the governor has been abominable. You know, the point is um, there's a, there's a former corrections official in North Dakota, not a liberal bastion uh, in the United States in any way, shape or form. Um, She's the former director of corrections in North Dakota wrote an article with a public health uh, official saying that we need to decarcerate as a matter of priority. There's no way to keep people safe in prisons and jails in the, in the United States, that these are institutional amplifiers, they're factories for virus uh, and, 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 and other sort of public health um, threats. Um, the governor has resisted it. Um, he said, we're doing a good job. We haven't you know, had that many deaths. What do you mean that many deaths? The point is you could prevent the carnage in state jails and prisons by by decarcerating people who are at the end of their sentence or or have uh, uh, other reasons to, to let them out. You know, maybe they're over 65, over 75. There's many have a coexisting comorbid condition. Um, he has been unwilling to listen to this. Dozens and dozens of Yale faculty wrote to him saying you need to de- decarcerate now. He's resisted again and again. Um, you know, he's been sued um, about this and still has resisted. Um, I think given the sort of overwhelming consensus around public health people that that prisons are a dangerous place to be in a pandemic, and it's not just theoretical. The biggest clusters of COVID-19 in the United States are in prisons and jails. Um, you know, it's not theoretical. I think he's under pressure to, to look tough on crime and not to look weak, look weak on law enforcement. The point is the governor should do what's right. And he's been urged by families of the incarcerated, by public health officials, um, by experts, by clinicians, by human rights activists to do the right thing. And he is dug in his heels on this. And it's, 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 it's going to be one of his, um, the stains on his legacy during this pandemic about what he's done in prisons and jails. A, a number of people in your profession have been debating over the course of the, the last week or so, maybe longer than that, about the, the possibility of stretching the numbers of doses that we have by administering more single-dose vaccines to more people quickly, foregoing the booster shots for now. It's something that the UK is talking about. How are you thinking about that issue of of single-dose vaccinations versus making sure that people have the two-dose vaccine that we know is 95% effective, at least in these vaccines that we're administering so far? So what would, I, what would you do? I mean, if I'm going to take the vaccine, I want both doses. And I'm not because I'm, I'm a vaccine hog and I want to to, to all the doses for me. So we don't know if, if a, a single dose of the vaccine has any durable protection. The FDA just wrote a, 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 um, an unusual statement to this effect over a couple of days ago saying, look, if new data comes in, great. But right now, uh, these, these vaccines have been approved for two doses um, on a vaccination schedule. Um, and that's the way it should be. You know, the, the big point is, is that, you know, we've had this we started our conversation about how terrible our vaccine delivery process has been. Um, 
the fact that we have production problems about some of the the current vaccines that we're trying to to put into people's bodies right now work on that it's the most obvious thing to to address right you know work on vaccine delivery vaccine production and stop playing fast and loose with the evidence right you know there there may be some studies that come out from the NIH over the next couple of weeks and months that suggest that um a uh, half a dose given twice given twice might be a feasible strategy but right now full dose two over two courses is is what the FDA says and what most most scientists i think are are, are suggesting is is the right way to go um the point is people are doing public policy by panic you know the point is we we can't get vaccines to the to the people who need them now we have a backlog people are talking about vaccine spoiling right and going past their ex- expiry date why do we need to split up doses if they're still sitting in the in 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 the depot waiting to get out to your CVS or Walgreens and even if they're sitting at the Walgreens or CVS they're still not in people's arms so it's it's sort of creating a a, a solution for a problem which is not a, happened quite yet in the terms of our and could be moot within a couple of months as we have new vaccines come out so it all sounds you know sounds very clever and cl- too clever by half let's deal with vaccine production let's deal with vaccine delivery and let's wait for the science to see what it says about potentially um uh splitting doses in half for instance but right now you know two doses several weeks apart is the way to go and getting them out to as many people as we can as, as fast as possible is what we should be doing in Connecticut how concerned are you about variants of the disease that we've seen coming from other countries? So look, viruses mutate all the time. There is some concern that the current viral variant that first sort of got talked about in the context of the UK has increased transmissibility, right? It's it, higher viral load, um, easier easier to, to get infected if, if you're, it, it, all things, all else being equal, it's easier to get infected with this new variant. It's not good. Um, it makes things worse, but you know, the point is to protect yourself against the new variant, you have to do what you do about the old variants, right? Um, you wear your mask, you do social distancing, you, you try to, you try to stay home if you can. Um, you know, so public practice and public health practice doesn't change very much. We don't know exactly how widespread this new variant is either, but regardless of, of its presence in the United States and the presence in the state, we should be doing what we should have been doing a month ago um, is tamping down on spread and uh, uh, across the state and across the cities in our state and the towns in our states as a matter of sort of basic public health common sense. Uh, a last thing for you. How hopeful are you about the Biden administration coming in, given some of what you've said and what we all know about the fact that the disinvestment in, in public health happened under the Obama administration as well as the Trump administration, given the fact that an awful lot of people in Washington, Democrats and Republicans alike, are, are going to still resist some of the big scale public health changes that you're talking about. Are you hopeful? So a couple of things. One is I'm super hopeful now that we have a Democratic Congress. Um, the idea that we were going to get any more robust pandemic relief under Mitch McConnell was was dead on arrival. I don't care what the president-elect says about his ability to work some bipartisan magic. Um, you know, a lot of people have been critical of me during the pandemic for criticizing the the Trump administration and, and Mitch McConnell thinking it was about just going after the GOP. But I think people are going to hold President-elect Biden and 
uh, feet to the fire and, you know, Senate Majority Leader to be Chuck Schumer's feet to the fire to deliver. And, you know, our own Rosa DeLauro is head of appropriations in the, in the House. Um, we need a pandemic relief bill as a matter of an emergency effort. And, it, and the money has to flow to ordinary people, not to corporations. We want people to do the right thing. We have to make it easy for them. So it means support to our, our small businesses that, that need to stay closed but can't afford to do it. Salary support to people who, who need to stay home but can't afford to do it. Um, masks, if we need to give them out to every household in, in the United States, we do that too. So I'm very hopeful that we'll have a short-term um, investment in, in squashing this pandemic. The point is if we're going to have an investment uh, in um, preventing the next one. Um, because, as I said, a new deal for public health, um, broadly conceived, is what we need to do to, to keep ourselves safe from the next health threat that's down the, around the corner, whether it's another virus or it's the sort of overwhelming sort of health effects of climate change. Um, we're not going to get through this without uh, having a better health system, uh, a stronger public health infrastructure, and, and a greater sort of um, set of social services and social welfare programs that can catch people when they fall. Greg Gonzalez, thank you so much for spending some time with me. I really appreciate it. Anytime. For more information on COVID in Connecticut, check out our Connecticut Mirror COVID tracker. It's right there on the front page. And tonight at 7 o'clock, join us for the second in our three-part series of legislative session previews. Jacqueline Rabe Thomas, Kellen Lyons, and Adria Watson will join me to talk through what we see this year when it comes to criminal justice reform, housing policy, and education. Sign up for this special Zoom event at ctmirror.org slash events. Thanks to Kyle Constable, Bruce Potterman, and Beth Hamilton. George Mastrianis and Dave Swanson provided our steady beats, and they were recorded at Legend Studios in Avon, Connecticut. I'm John Dankosky, and we'll see you next Wednesday.